We turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Did you know we're partners in the gospel? Did you know if you risk capital and you take money that you have and you invest it in a business and you reap the rewards of that investment if the business does well, but you also suffer the loss of the business if it doesn't do well. But that's the part of the risk and return scenario. But if you're going to risk your capital and you go into a business venture with a partner, um, then you want that partner to succeed and your partner wants you to succeed because the success of you both has uh, influence on the other. So even for selfish reasons, you want your partner to succeed. Well, guess what? We're partners in the greatest enterprise on the face of this earth. And we have a vested interest in each other's success. And that's not because we're trying to make it succeed. As Brian shared a few moments ago, the victory's already been won. But it's because if we want to succeed and bear witness to the gospel to a lost world, then we're responsible to him and we're accountable and submissive and should love one another. That's why he put us in the church together. We're, we're, we have a vested interest. You have an interest in my walk with Jesus, and I have an interest in your walk with him. And, and if we love one another, that's how we're going to act. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to be patient with one another because we're going to take people where they are, where they are spiritually, and some are less mature than others, and some are more mature. But the ones that are more mature will be patient with the ones that are less mature until they become mature themselves. And we're going to help one another because we're partners in the gospel. We're not partners in lesser things. Could you imagine a greater partnership and greater calling? And we risk nothing. God is the one that risked it. God is the one that spilled his son's blood on Calvary. God put this together. And he invested all of the capital. And I don't know about you, but I can tell you this. And I've said this before. We're selective about who we leave our children with. And you are too. You wouldn't just let anybody keep your children. And God, can you imagine, has given us stewardship over the gospel over the message of his son. And I look at myself in the mirror and go, God, you're not very selective. And that's the attitude we ought to have, really, because that means we'll have to depend on him. Is it down to that? I think it's down to that. Amen. So let's receive the word this morning. We're going to get started here. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. But this is a wonderful catalyst for the Lord's Supper, this text that we're going to use this morning. God put this together. He's a lot smarter than we are. I want to say this too. Just as a side note, I didn't realize this. This guy that Joe witnessed to the gospel was a client of Joe's. Joe's got a pest control business, and he was a client. And his conversations with him probably went along the somewhere of, along the lines of, you know, his pest problems, billing, stuff like that, interaction in regard to the commercial relationship they had together but you know that over the course of several several months he's been taking chemotherapy and he's been very ill they had lung cancer and joe just told me a while ago to god be the glory he wasn't bragging on himself he was bragging on jesus the last conversation he ever had with him was not about his billing it wasn't about his roach problem it was about the gospel the very last thing he ever did was share the gospel with him aren't you grateful for that praise god we're partners in the gospel and guess what? We got to be a part of that because his name was up there on that cross. And we were praying for his salvation and God opened up that heart 
God's still mighty to save. Amen. All right, let's read it together. If you're physically able, will you stand with me as we read it? Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Brethren, join in following my example and make those who so walk, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. That's the word of the living God. May you be seated, please. Thank you so much. The Apostle Paul, in his ministry, if you look at the epistles, he wrote... 13, possibly 14 books of the, new, of the 27 books of the New Testament. And the epistles, you notice that he's always, is a, there's a familiar theme in dealing with the problems that harassed his ministry and still harassed the church today. He dealt with one of them, and we've studied it over the course of the last several weeks in our time in Philippians, and he introduced it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. The introduction there was, he said, beware of the dogs, the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Here, if you remember, he's dealing with the legalists. What he's saying about their legalism is this. Their outward practices of circumcision and doing outward things to show forth their own righteousness, to justify them before God, amounted to nothing more than mutilating their flesh. That's all it was. He said it didn't do you any good. Much preaching today is nothing more than flesh management. You know, let's get let's get some principles together and let's examine how you can make your life better. And you could take your flesh, and to be honest with you, you could take some of those principles, you can apply them to your business, you can apply them to your family, and in some measure they'll work. In some measure, they'll work. But it's nothing more than flesh management. And these guys would give lip service to the fact that the gospel is free. They would give lip service to the fact that salvation is by grace through faith. And by the way, you will habitually hear from this pulpit, God willing, salvation is by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is not what we've done. It's putting faith and trust in what God did. Through his son. So they give lip service to the fact that salvation is by grace through faith and it's not of works. Then they supposedly get into the body of Christ. Maybe they got in and maybe they didn't. God will figure that out. But then they say, but no, now we need the law. We need to evoke law on people and heavy burdens on people and give them codes of conduct so that they can manage their flesh and look like on the inside that they're Christians when on the outside they're as corrupt as they've ever been. And so Paul did dealt with that. These were the legalists. These were the dogs. These were the ones that Jesus reserved His harshest comments for on this earth. 
He said, on the outside, you're a whitewashed fence, but on the inside, you are ravenous wolves. And you're taking the burdens that, you're impo- that you are carrying yourself and you're imposing on other people and saying, in order to be acceptable before God, and in order to live acceptable before God, you've got to do the following. Let me tell you this right now. We are no longer under law. We are under grace. We are under grace. Did you know the Bible says that the law is not made for a righteous man? The Bible says the law is made for the lawless and the insubordinate and ungodly. First Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. He said the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And the purpose of the law is to show how, us, how unholy we are. But the law cannot, the law cannot, the law cannot make you holy. And the law cannot empower you to live holy. We need to recognize the limits of the law and respect them so that we can turn to Christ and live with new power. Amen? And so they would impose those yokes and put them on them around them. And Paul, like his Savior, gave them harsh rebukes and they deserved them. They slipped in among them and he tried to refute it. And he did it with his own personal resume. You remember it. He said, here's my debit column and here's my credit column. My debit column, I was trying to be a righteous man by by the works of the law, and now it's rubbish to me. My credit column is, I found that there is a righteousness, and it's from God, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's how he dealt with it. Then he turns around and says this. Let me tell you how you apply this truth. And you remember, we preached a sermon about it. The rearview mirror versus the front windshield of your car. You keep that in perspective. Don't let the rearview mirror be as big as the windshield. The rearview mirror is smaller and the windshield's bigger. And the only reason you'll ever look at the rearview mirror is to get a little bit of perspective so you don't go to smelling yourself and you realize what God did to deliver you from your sorry self. But you go look through the windshield and realize that I am groping for the return of my Lord. And I've been changed. I've been made new. Old things have passed away. I'm a brand new man or woman. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. So you deal with that. So we went through that. Now we come to chapter 3. And here he is. Now he's dealing with the other group that gives the church problems. Nothing's changed. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Whatever heresy there is out there, it's not new. It's just repackaged. The devil is not creative. He doesn't need to be because his tools work. And if it ain't broke, why fix it? Here's the other crowd he was dealing with. He turns his attention now. He goes from the mutilators. Now he goes over here and this is the crowd he's dealing with now. This is the crowd who uses grace as a license to sin. You've got the legalist on one hand. That's where he began dealing with him in uh, the mutilation verse. And then on the other hand, now you've got the licensed crowd. So you've got the legalist and you've got the licensed crowd. The licensed crowd are enemies of the cross. How would you like to have that handle on you? How would you like to be called an enemy of the cross? So here's their problem. Look at it. It says, join me in following my example. He just gave his personal testimony. He said, renounce everything you were trusting in and just put all your eggs in one basket and trust Christ. And listen, if anybody is ever tempted to look back and receive the condemnation I was once under, it's me because I was having Christians killed. And if I can press forward, surely you can. 
If I can move forward in faith, and if I can be the apostle to the Gentiles, and if I can let God use me, He can flat use you. Whatever your wasm is, it's a wasm. And what you are now is your ism, and your ism is Jesus. And he said, now, follow that example. Then he said, I've got a couple other guys you can follow that example too. Do you remember who they are? Who are the other two? He said, follow my example and know those who walk like I do as you have us for a pattern. You know who the other two were? Anybody remember? Calls on my name in this epistle. Timothy? Epaphroditus. He said, listen, well, you got examples right here. He wasn't bragging. He wasn't boasting. He was boasting in Jesus. He said, but I've let Jesus have His way with me. Follow my example. He said, for many though now, walk of whom I've told you often. Now see, you, when He was among them, He warned them of this. He said, they're going to be people... You're going to be people who creep in among you and they are going to preach that grace is a license to sin. What do we mean by that? Simply means that salvation is a free gift and it is a free gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You're not saved by works, but you're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If it is a gift... Some would falsely conclude, okay, if it's a gift, then I can go indulge. I can live the way I want to live. I can feed my fleshly appetites because after all, I'm forgiven by the grace of God. So these are the ones who would, would take sorry living and use the grace of God to excuse away their sorry living. And people like that are enemies of the cross. Let me tell you why. Because the cross is not just something we view. The cross is something we apply. See, Jesus, remember, His death was twofold in the sense of the believer. He died as our substitute, but He also died as our representative. And once having put faith in Christ, the gospel is transformational. The gospel results in a new life. A new life does not produce the gospel, but a new life is evidence of the gospel. The cross of Jesus is how He dealt with mine and your flesh. God said, I've got no inheritance in the flesh. There can be no inheritance in the flesh. What you used to be, I cannot and I will not use. I have to make you brand new. Remember we talked about the example of the McDonald's near our house where we get coffee. They're building a new one. And the reason they're able to build it is because we've bought enough coffee to pay for it. And instead of modifying the old thing that's been there for 30-something years, they leveled it and started over. Sisters and brothers, that's the cross. The cross is God's exclamation point on the timeline of history that says, in you nothing good resides. This is my disposition towards sin. I hate it, but I love you. And I'm willing to go to this length to purchase you and to free you from its penalty, its power to rule over you, and praise God, I will deliver you one day from its very presence. It's the cross of Calvary. And we're losing sight of the gospel in our preaching. And we're losing sight of the gospel in our churches. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Not reformation, transformation. 
of all the things that God has ever done, I don't have a hard time believing that He could speak the world into existence in six days. I believe He could do it in six minutes. I believe He could do it in six seconds. I believe He could do it in less than the bat of His eye. I don't have a problem believing that. But the fact that God would send His very Son to take my place on Calvary to die for me, count me in. That is a miracle. Do you understand the cross is not just some message to admire? It's a Savior to embrace. It's power. It's brand new life when there was no life before. It's transformational. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. It's God's will that the cross of Jesus liberate us from our sin, from the the penalty of it, from the power it has to rule over us, and the hope that one day we'll be away from its presence. But in the meantime, did you know what His desire is for the believer? It's for us to be holy. What kind of damage? What kind of damage to the cause of Christ do the enemies of the cross do? Oh, I'm good. See, it's the contrast between the work of the cross for you and the work of the cross in you. I'm good with the work of the cross for me. Hallelujah. Hey, count me in. I'll sing the songs right beside you. I might even raise one hand. I might even raise two. I might even get happy about it. But don't go to messing in garment with the work of the cross in me. That's an enemy of the cross. If you're not careful, you can be an enemy of the cross in somebody else's life. You're not careful. I want you to know something. One of the greatest challenges in ministry is to have the discernment. It's to when to rescue somebody and when not to. You've got to let the Holy Spirit do what He wants to do to get out of the way of somebody's personal trip to the cross. When God's dealing with somebody, for goodness sake, let Him deal with them. Let Him deal with them. His interests are far greater than ours. Do you understand how puny our minds are? We want to rescue people for temporary rescue. God's into eternity. That's His perspective. The title of this message is The Pilgrim Mind. The way to live like this and the way to avoid being an enemy of the cross is to have the pilgrim mind. Look at it. He goes on to say it. He said, I've told you that they're going to come in. They're going to sneak in among you. They're going to be inside outsiders. They're going to confuse people. You know who the most confusing people on the face of this earth are? The people who are in the middle. The people who are hot or cold. God said, I'd rather be one or the other. But when you're in the middle, you confuse everybody around you because nobody knows what color your jersey is. We're to be so predictable, we're boring. They're enemies of the cross. In other words, they say they embrace Jesus. I love the work of the cross for me. Or, but I don't care anything about the work of the cross in me. Let me tell you this. It's not the work of the cross in you that saves you, but it is a manifestation that you are saved. We've got to find out that our identity is in Christ. Your identity is not in your behavior. Your identity is in your Savior. But if your identity is in your Savior, He will change your behavior. Not some code, not some rite of passage, not some rule, not some regulation, but a Redeemer. Hallelujah to His name. He said their end is destruction. Listen, they're going to destroy their lives and they're going to carry people with them. Their God is what? Their belly, their appetites. That's it. That's the license to live, the license to sin part. Oh, I exist for me. I determine what pleases me. 
I judge my actions based on outcome, not on the basis of God's will. And if the outcome suits me, that's the pursuit, that's the path I'll follow. But I'm not going to base it on God's will. Because after all, I'm God. And he said, you know what? You're headed for destruction. The Bible says twice there is a way that seems right unto man, but that way leads to destruction. They're fooled. The God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. Can we declare right now our citizenship is in heaven? Oh, would that we would have the pilgrim mentality. Would we see us as sojourners? Would we see us as those who are just passing through? This is not our home. I'm going to close with this because it leads us right to the Lord's Supper. We're going to spend some time in this text. This is an important text. All texts are important. But we're going to go into it. You don't want to miss this. We're going to go into the kind of living that characterizes the pilgrim mentality. And God gives it specifically, specifically in His Word. What does it mean to have the pilgrim mentality? Because it's the pilgrim mindset. Let me give you an example of that. Several months ago, uh, uh, Michael looking at gave me a book. It's not a Christian book. It's a, just a book about a, a very intriguing story. I'm surprised they hadn't made a movie out of it. Maybe somebody has. It's about Sir Ernest Shackleton. Part of that story is recounted in uh, David Jeremiah's book about what in the world is going on. I think it's the title of the book. It's a good book. Somebody sent me the book and I read it. And on Saturday, August 8, 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton enlisted the help of 29 men and they got in a wooden ship and they set sail from Plymouth, England to the Antarctica. And their mission was that they wanted to be the first people to, to cross over the whole continent of Antarctica on foot. And here we are in 1914. What an ambitious journey. He put an ad, I guess, at the local paper and posted some things on throughout the town and said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, Long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return of doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. How to win men and influence people, huh? Well, he was such a leader, instilled a lot of confidence in people. 29 men signed on. They affectionately referred to him as the boss on the voyage but he didn't like that title and wouldn't have sought it for himself because he really was a servant leader the name of their ship strangely enough was Endurance what an appropriate name for the ship on January 15th as they set sail and had been sailing for a long time they got entrapped in an ice pack and they set up camp on an ice floe which is a slice of sea ice where they could camp there until they figured out what they were going to do. He served the meals to uh, his men. He had a sleeping blanket that was fur-lined, and some of them didn't. He refused to sleep in it because he wanted to act and live just like his men did. So it became apparent as the ice broke and started to, their home, their iceberg started to disappear, that if they stayed there, they'd surely perish. So their best option was they set sail for a small island near where they were on April 1916 
It's called Elephant Island. And they stayed there for a while as well. And then they realized, you know what, we're going to have to go for help. And that was ambitious to do that as well. So Shackelford and five others got in a 22-and-a-half-foot lifeboat that they had attached to Endurance. And they set sail for an 800-mile journey across the sea to go get help. I guess the true hero of the story, and this is where the spiritual application comes, was his second man in charge he left behind. His name was Frank Wilde. <clears throat> Here's how he kept the men engaged and hopeful. He kept them on a, root, a daily routine. They had daily duties. They had daily activities. They served meals. They held sing-alongs to encourage each other. They had athletic events where they would run and race and They would shave away ice drifts that came along because they knew if they were left alone and somebody did stumble upon them, the ice would prevent them from being seen. So he kept them busy. But the most significant thing he did was every morning he'd roll up a sleeping bag every day and he said, guys, get your things ready, boys, because the boss may come today. So every day they got up and they broke camp and they looked on the distant horizon of the sea and they realized, you know what, he's going to come one day. So come one day and when the fog comes, he's going to break through that fog one day and he's going to come back and get us. He said he would. And he was a man of integrity. He was a servant leader and we know he cared about us because he lived among us and served us. And I know one day he's going to come back. And that kept them engaged. It kept them hopeful. It kept them sharp. It kept them working. They didn't lay idly by and just say in some lullaby, you know, he's coming back one day. No, they were engaged and they were ready. 105 days after he left on August the 30th, the fog did break through. And he was on a Chilean vessel that they come across. And here comes the boss. And the boss marveled at how quick they got onto the ship and how quick they were able to gather their stuff together. You know why? Because it was already gathered together. One day, boss is coming back. He's going to break through the frog. And we'll be able to say, like we've said all these years, he keeps his promises. He was a servant leader. He came down here and lived among us. And he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. He washed our feet. He did the same thing to me and you. He might as well have washed our feet. And realized, you know what? He's going to make good on his promises. If he promised to come and die, and God raised him from the dead, and he did. If he promised to come back, he's coming back. Let me tell you something. This convicts me to no end. It starts with me. We need to have our children. We need to be ready. And we need to roll up our sleeping bags and quit acting like this is home. Because let me tell you what the Bible says that does to you. You know what that does to you? The Bible says the one who possesses that kind of hope, it purifies your living. Because you don't want him to come back and find you doing something you ought not to be doing. I don't want him to come back and find me outside his will, self-indulgent, feed my own appetite. This is the counter to the license to sin people. They're saying this is my home. You know, I can act the way I want to. There's no accountability. There's no judgment. There's no reckoning. There's none of that. 
But we know all that not to be true. There is accountability. There is reckoning. There is all of that. And the Bible says the man who possesses this hope makes his heart pure. Maybe the reason we're so unholy and we're living such puny lives is because we really don't believe He's coming back. That we've lost sight of His imminent return. Here we are about to have the Lord's Supper. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Pastor Dave's going to come and read the rest of this narrative as we share in this supper. I want to read this. And by the way, this is not some morbid renunciation of this world where we're not engaged in it. It's not where we go crawl up in a hole somewhere and wait till he comes back. Shackleford's men, you know what he had them doing? They were busy. They were preparing the camp. They were singing to one another. They were singing songs. They were stirring. You know what the church ought to be doing? We ought to be stirring one another up to love and good works as we see the day approaching. You know, did you know we leave that part of the verse out? As you see the day approaching, stir one another up to love and good works. Let's act like, let's live like we're leaving. We've used this analogy many times, but this world is the Titanic. It's going under. And here we are as Christians rearranging the furniture. We are to be on the deck crying out and saying, get off of this boat and get into a lifeboat. And God sent a lifeboat and His name is Jesus Christ. You cling to this boat and you'll go under. The Bible says, the world is passing away and the lust thereof. But the man who does the will of God abides forever. Look what it says. Verse 26. Don't lose sight of this. This encompasses the whole ministry of our Lord. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What? Till He comes. If we're not careful, we as Christians put a period behind His death. And we forget about the rest of the sentence. You proclaim the Lord's death. Should we proclaim the Lord's death? You better believe it. That's the epicenter of the Christian life. It's all to us, that cross. We don't worship the cross, but we certainly worship the Savior who died there. And our hope is vested there, not just there, but in the fact that God raised His blessed Son from the dead. But look at the rest of the narrative. Till He comes. We've got to get the pilgrim mentality because normal Christian living has a pilgrim mentality. We're just passing through. Dear ones, He is coming again. It could be today. Roll up your sleeping bag. Get the camp ready. And while you're waiting for the break through the fog, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.